0: In a global industry where anything can happen, where mistakes cost much more than dollars, we bring you expertise from around the world to ensure that everyone goes home safe every day. The internationally acclaimed Oil & Gas HSE podcast starts now with your host, Russell Stewart.
1: Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to another episode of Oil & Gas HSE, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. And thanks to the show's sponsor today, Technip FMC. Technip FMC is a leading technology provider to the traditional and new energy industries, delivering fully integrated projects, products, and services with their proprietary technologies and comprehensive solutions. Technip FMC is helping their clients to support their energy transition ambitions by developing new energy resources and reducing carbon intensity. Tell them thank you for sponsoring the show by going to their website at com. Check out their iComplete system that optimizes fracking operations with 30% lower costs and also see how their trademarked eMission can give operators and producers real-time monitoring and control to reduce flaring while increasing production. Technape FMC, the future of the energy industry. Today my guest on the show is David Miller. David is the Senior Director, Standards Development, Global Industry Services for the American Petroleum Institute. Dave, thanks for coming on the show today.
0: Well, Russell, thanks for having me. I'm
1: looking forward to this conversation. Well, I am too, because this isn't your first rodeo, actually in more ways than one, which we'll talk about here in just a minute, but it's not your first rodeo on this podcast. You were on the show back in March. It was, if I must say, those who regularly listen to the show know one of my favorite proverbs is, he who tooteth not his own horn may never hear his own horn tooted. So I don't mind tooting my own horn. And yours, as a matter of fact, was a very good interview. And in fact, if anyone's interested, I listen to the podcasts on Spotify. And I don't have any stock in Spotify. And they're not a sponsor or anything like that. I know a lot of people listen on iTunes. In fact, I get some report every month showing the various different platforms that people listen to. So I really don't know how it works on all the others. But if you're on Spotify, you can actually go back and find all the OGG and HSE episodes. But you can find this particular one. It was done back in March. So we're happy to have Dave back on again because of API's importance in the oil and gas industry, and especially as it relates to health, safety, and the environment. Just real quick, David, before we get into the body of this show, we won't go into all the details like we did on the last show, but just so people know who may not have heard the show in March, you've got more initials behind your name than is almost in your name itself. (laughs) I do, don't I? (laughs) And actually... I found out when we did the podcast, you don't even have all the initials on here because you're a professional engineer. That's P.E. That's behind your name. Then you're a fellow of the, and I forget what ASCE stands for.
0: Sure. So I'm a fellow of the American Society of Civil Engineers. ASCE is the country's oldest professional society. Founded over 150 some odd years ago, and it's gosh probably 120, 130,000 strong. And I've been a member of ASCE since my years in college and have been active in the Houston chapter when I lived in Houston. I'm now on their membership advisory review committee. I've also active on their diversity and equity and inclusion committee called, I'll think of its name in a minute, but anyway, that's one of the newer committees. So yeah, ASCE is a great organization, a great professional society, and I always encourage young engineers and young people in the industry that when you have an opportunity to get involved in your professional society and sort of create that credentialing, like being a fellow of ASCE and other organizations, certainly SPE has great programs as well. It's always a great opportunity for you to not only network, but for you to kind of stand out within your industry as an individual that says, right, I'm interested in more than just you know, showing up every day and doing my job and going home. I want to kind of better the industry. I want to better my profession. So I always encourage folks to follow up on their credentialing opportunities.
1: Well, you know, I want to follow up on that too, since you're talking about young engineers, the art of networking. We're kind of, we've always got our face stuck in the phone and everything, all the information we get off Google these days. Networking, is not what it used to be. And I don't think a lot of times some of these younger professionals realize the importance of actually associating with people of actually, you know, face-to-face type communication. So that's an excellent point that you bring out there. But I do want to mention, even though you have the professional engineering degree, you've got another degree that's in environmental science, right? Right.
0: Yes, I graduated from the University of Texas at Dallas with a degree in environmental sciences. And so I can also, you know, speak to kind of progressing your career. And as you were saying, you know, networking being so not so important, you just never know where some of those opportunities are going to lead you. That other committee I'm active on for ASE is called Mosaic. And really what they're looking at, and this is an interesting part of, of engineering right now, and certainly a very interesting part of both you know, oil and gas, and certainly the work that you do, Russell, is sort of thinking about the engineering and the programs we do in light of, you know, sort of the broad topic of what's called environmental justice. And certainly when I went to school, and probably when you did as well, you kind of thought about, well, if I'm building a pipeline, of course, the straight line goes right through here, right? But now at API and within the industry, and and sort of broadly, you know, across society, we're thinking about, well, you know, when we put that next pipeline in, or when we build that next, you know, plant, what are the kinds of things we need to be thinking about in addition to obviously, you know, engineering design, efficiency, economy, all those kinds of things, we also need to be thinking about, well, you know, what are the potential impacts on the community? How do we minimize those? How do we get the community involved in what we're doing and not just sort of superficially where you see something posted in the, you know, in a chat room where you actually engage with the public? So I think those are kinds of all things that kind of tie into kind of the way that industry is trying to be much more mindful of the approach that we take with some of our operations.
1: Actually, you probably said that better than I can. It's ironic that you mentioned that. I was going over some things this morning. What I've said on this show over and over again, the oil and gas industry is not the problem with the environment. The oil and gas industry is going to be the solution to the environment. And because we are thinking about these things now, I think maybe we have to admit that 50, 60, 70 years ago, that wasn't a big concern. We can admit that. We can admit the faults, but we can also say, hey, you know, to use a religious word, we've repented. We are concerned about all these things with the environment and our environmental standards and our safety standards. We're concerned about them and they're getting better every day.
0: Yeah, exactly. One of the really interesting ones we're working on right now that I might have mentioned in the previous podcast, but bears repeating, is on pipeline public engagement. And that's a really interesting group where we pull together a very balanced committee of the owner operators, as we call them, the pipeline companies, the government officials, we have state, you know, local and federal people participating. And then we made a very strong outreach for this particular standard with what we're calling the ngo community and non-governmental organizations and there we have tribal leaders and there we have you know folks from the pipeline safety trust and there we have other interested stakeholders as the term is used right now to really say right when we craft this together when we want to give some really good guidance to industry and to the public and to the government folks when we're talking about you know pipeline operations how's the best way to do that? How do you, you know, do your outreach? How do you communicate and have them understand sort of the full life cycle of that operation? So I think you're right. I like the term repenting. I don't know that I would use that one necessarily, but I think just the idea, I think the idea that this is now becoming something in our industry, the whole concept of EJ, environmental justice, which is a little hard at times to get your arms around. But when you think about it, it's really just sort of in addition to all those very important engineering and sort of economic type but thoughts you have going into projects. You go, well, okay, how does this impact the community that I'm going to be in? You know, hey, my workers, my staff live there too. How do we make sure that people are comfortable with what we're doing, that they understand why we're doing it and that? You know, quite frankly, when you're at that neighborhood picnic, people go, oh yeah, you work for such and such. And you guys did a great job of outreach and made sure that our community leaders and and individuals felt engaged in the process as well. So I think it's all part of that sort of that maturation that we're we're seeing across industry. And I think that to the extent that an API standard or a report or a technical document can assist in that, you know, that's all for the better because the documents are so widely used and recognized throughout the industry, and, quite frankly, around the world.
1: Well, exactly. In fact, just to go back to your title, global is in your title and American Petroleum Institute's just not the USA, but you've got offices everywhere. In fact, we said on the last podcast, your largest international office, I think you said was in Beijing. Is that right? That's right. Yep. And the reason I used, my father was a minister and my grandfather was a minister. So the word repent just kind of <laughs> came to my head there. But it's a good one. It's a good What, word. I, was, a good what word. I was actually talking about, thinking about this morning is whatever they call it, New Green Deal movement or whatever. By the way they're treating the oil and gas industry, what they're actually doing is they're throwing out the proverbial baby with the bathwater. That's why when you talk about this program with the pipelines and getting involved with the community and all, yeah, public relations... That's probably where we need to repent of. That's where we've (laughs) got to do a better job. And, And API is really leading the way on that. And I appreciate that. In fact, you know, and we have evolved and we are evolving for the better. But API has been developing standards since 1919,
0: right? Exactly. Exactly right. It's one of our foundational programs.
1: So standard. In fact, if I remember correctly, on the last show, you guys had reached over 700 standards but I think now you've achieved another milestone, haven't you?
0: Yeah, we've just recently gone past 800 different standards that the Institute, working with all of our great you know, committee members and industry counterparts, we're now over 800 documents. And so, yeah, we've been developing standards since 1919. Essentially, as long as there's been an API, there's been a standards development program. As I mentioned before, one of our foundational programs where the industry coming out of the experiences of trying to support, you know, the World War One effort, realized that hey, if I'm drilling a well and I can't get, you know, the equipment that I usually might get from manufacturer that I've been buying from because, you know, they're, you know, they're not in a position to support what I need. And so I need to go to a different manufacturer. Sometimes you had interchangeability issues where you know simple things like drill pads, you know, Drill threads wouldn't match up, and obviously, both from a safety and an environmental perspective, you want to keep everything, as we say, in the pipe that's supposed to be in the pipe, right? Exactly. Yeah. So standards were really developed, starting off with safety and interchangeability between manufacturers, so that you could continue putting that well in place, you could continue to properly operate that refinery, that pipeline, and so now we've grown from you know what started out in you know drill threading, a very basic you know, thing for standardization, very basic standardization need to all these different areas, including, you know, measurement, refining operations, service stations, I mean, just about everything. We're unique in that we're the only standards-developing organization that is focused solely on one industry. We don't write standards for anything else. You know, we're focused solely on natural gas and petroleum and oil standards. And so because of that, it allows us to really hone in on that and build a suite of standards that supports what we call the entire value chain for oil and gas, everything it takes to to basically get it out of the ground, get it measured transported to wherever it needs to be, get it changed into those you know really important you know high value products that we all you know use in our daily lives and then make sure at the end of the day that you've got proper standards on the environmental maintenance of those facilities and operations. so yeah it's been a great opportunity for industry working as I said with our counterparts, both member and non-member companies alike, to develop these technical standards and reports over all these years.
1: So how does API develop a standard? What's the process?
0: Yeah, first and foremost, I'll just mention that we are accredited by the American National Standards Institute. I'm sure I mentioned this when we spoke before, but it, it bears repeating that you know, ANSI or the American National Standards Institute, and in full transparency, I'm a member of the board and chair their finance committee and chair their international policy advisory group. ANSI is the standards accrediting body here in the U.S., sort of the standards authority that has an MOU with the National Institute of Standards and Technology to sort of create this accreditation program. So they accredit us as a standards developer. And so the process is such that, you know, we're required to meet ANSI's criteria for openness, balance, consensus, and due process in the development of our standards. And so I know that I covered that before, so I won't go into detail on that. But going back to your question, Russell, about the process, it really starts off with a project proposal form. Ours is called our standards resource and research request form, lovingly called the SRRR, the SR3. And it's really a form that brings together two parts of what it takes to develop a standard. The first part is you know, what is the standard going to cover? What is the subject? What's going to be kind of the overview? You know, what's the scope of the standard, if that's a new standard, or if that's a revision to an existing standard? And what are the resources that are required? What is it going to take in the number of committee members, expected number of meetings, you know, any additional information you might need? And then the second part of the form gets into research. Again, going back to the point I made earlier, since we're solely focused on the natural gas and petroleum and oil industry, we're able to reinvest some of the resources that we recover from the sale of our standards in basic funded research. And so there may be areas where we need to do research to create a new standard or to update an existing standard. A great example is we do a lot of work in metallurgy for the refining industry, because obviously those alloys are key to safe operations. And so we'll reinvest some of the resources that come into API from publication sales and updating those standards. And so that form comes together. Once that form is agreed upon by the subject matter experts and the parent, typically a subcommittee, it will then go up to the parent committee for review and evaluation. And that's a kind of a policy level committee that is made up of our member company reps, because we really want, you know, our member companies to you know, have a strong, you know, say and in buy-in into developing that new addition of that standard, that newest standard. Once it's reviewed by them and we verify that the resources are available both from the standpoint of the member company committee members and their participation and support. And ideally, in that form, you identify a chairman of the group that always helps drive the process forward. And if we need any additional funding, either you know, from the API budget or elsewhere. Then, once it's approved, then we actually stand up our standards committee and then the work gets started. But again, you know, going back to those ANSI criteria from an openness standpoint, you know, once those projects are approved, they go into our database, our standards tracking database, and that drives a report that is updated 24 7 in real time on our website that has all of our projects being worked on at any given time. You can go to that part of the website. And you can see if the standard is being revised. And if it is, if it's in you know, the pre-ballot phase, which is that early phase when you're developing it, then when it goes into ballot and editing and comment resolution and finally publication. So that's our openness from a balance standpoint. We try to have a balance of different interests around the table. So it's not just the operators or just the manufacturers or just the consultants writing the standard. From consensus, we publish all of our standards based on a two-thirds majority and a simple majority return of the ballots, and then finally due process, that's extremely important. And that's the part that sometimes takes a bit longer than we like. But I think the fact that we do it so deliberately really speaks to the care that the subject matter experts put into these standards. And so what will happen is when the standard goes into that formal ballot phase, you know, we'll receive comments. We may receive as few as... A half dozen we can on some of our more critical standards receive into the hundreds of comments and then we'll take a very deliberate process to review each and every comment by the consensus body make a determination how we're gonna either change the standard or not and then respond back to the individual commenters letting them know how their comments were treated so that they understand okay this was fully considered by the subject matter experts and either made a change or they didn't if they didn't here's why So then once that process closes out, that's when we move to the actual general counsel review of all of our standards, of course, and then the editorial layout process, and then finally publication. Tune in next week for another engaging episode of the Oil & Gas HSE podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.